You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 81 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we are coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and also the M.S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauket, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Also, consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help encourage our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Susan Banks, who is the Director of Library Development at the Office of Commonwealth Libraries at the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Wow, that sounds really, really fancy. That's a long one. That's a long one. That's a mouthful. It's very It's hard to remember. I almost never get it right. We're going to speak with Susan about the library evolution from in-person to virtual services and then back to a hybrid model and how that affects the service core, attaching the physical collection to the digital collection and how that affects and serves urban, rural, and suburban libraries of all sizes and what new skills librarians must now have in this changing world. But first, let's learn about Susan. So first of all, thanks for joining us today. You're our neighbor to the West in Pennsylvania, and you've worked in the field in various regions of the United States. So why don't you tell us first where you're originally from and the places you've worked? Well, I'm, I'm a native of Kentucky, and every once in a while you'll, you'll hear a little bit of that. But I also grew up partially in Washington, D.C., in the Washington, D.C. area. So early on, between the ages of like 7 and 12, I adopted an eastern seaboard accent in order to fit in. So, uh, but I, I grew up in Kentucky on a farm and have lived in a lot of different places. And libraries are actually my third career. So I didn't, I, uh, my libraries that I've worked in since I got into the field right about the same time as the internet in libraries and the Gates Foundation's work um, in 1997, uh, I have worked at the Herb Patel Memorial Library in West Jefferson, Ohio, which is sort of a suburb, exurb of Columbus. Uh, then the Plain City Public Library, exurb of Columbus. Then Marysville Public Library, exurb of Columbus. And then during that time, I went to uh, Kent State University, the Columbus campus, and got my master's. And then I moved back to Kentucky to the Kent and worked for the Kenton County Public Library, an amazing system. Then bounced all the way out to Portland and worked for the Multnomah County Library System where I was the director of the Central Library, an amazing building, an amazing staff, an amazing library system. Then bounced back to Pittsburgh where I was the deputy director of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, also amazing in every way and then bounced over to Harrisburg, the state capital uh, in Pennsylvania to work for the state library or the Office of Commonwealth Libraries as we call it. We have two bureaus, the state library and the uh, library development. So I'm in charge of one half of library development. Well, that's a good segue into our next question. So. We'll get into some specific things in our next segment, but tell us generally what someone with the awesome title of Director of the Bureau of Library Development does, and what are some of your biggest challenges? And uh, and don't forget about uh, all the COVID stuff that we've had going on, right? So, right, exactly. So. And that was, there was a lot of work <laughs> involved at the Office of Commonwealth Libraries of communicating with the field and guiding and uh, you know just making sure that everybody had the information that they needed. We're uh, working on providing funding to still through the CARES Act and all that stuff. And that's some of the things that we do. Every library development director in most states have one associated with their state library or their um, state library agency. We all do something, you know, sort of the same thing, sort of slightly different, pretty much like any, like what do library directors do? Well, directors of develop, library development tend to work primarily with the libraries in the state that they serve. So I lead the team 
of the Bureau of Library Development, and we have two divisions. We have the Advising and Outreach Division, where we provide um, guidance and oversee um, the day-to-day -day operations or support, I should say. We don't really oversee it uh, in a meaningful way. We watch it. Of the almost, almost 700 library locations, 457 library entities in the state of Pennsylvania. That's public libraries, but we also work with school libraries and special libraries and academic libraries and everything else. So all things library are us. And then the other division that we have is grants and subsidies. So that allows us to distribute the money that comes down from the, from the Institute of Museum and Library Services, the LSTA money, Library Services and Technology Act money, that is distributed to states. So we distribute that and we do that for projects and sometimes for competitive grant rounds. And we also are lucky and very, very grateful to our state legislature who every year gives us somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60 some million dollars to distribute to the library field. It goes primarily out to public libraries, but pieces of it support the state library. That state funding supports the libraries for the blind and physically handicapped. Soon, spoiler alert, in Pennsylvania will be renamed Libraries for Accessible Media for Pennsylvanians, or LAMP. So we're working on that rebranding. But state funding funds the Libraries for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and it also funds statewide electronic resources that we offer through Power Library and statewide delivery. It takes the edge off the cost of statewide delivery and ILL delivery across the state. That's all state funding. So that's my bureau oversees and that grants and grants and what is it? What did I say? Grants and subsidies oversees the distribution of state funds and federal funds. Wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that sounds like sure. you're a very busy person. Yeah. And my staff's really busy too. Everybody, I have some amazing folks who work with me uh, in the Bureau of Library Development. And then there's the state library folks who are also amazing. I'm very lucky to be where I am. It's it's absolutely one of the most challenging library jobs. Honestly, the challenge, most challenging job. And I've had a lot of jobs that I've ever had. And it's very exciting and fun and never, ever boring. I can imagine. I mean, especially with technology changes and, and the current challenges that we're experiencing with COVID-19. That, that has absolutely. to add an extra whole layer to your job. So what do you think is or feel that your biggest challenge in this position is now versus what you've done as a library director because you're go you went from managing one building to managing basically an entire state. Yeah. It's a it's a big thing. And I when I applied for this job two years ago, after six years at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, which is a big library, that's that's a know, huge system too, locations. yeah. Yeah. And and I was sort of as deputy director, I was kind of I oversaw public services. So I always had my eye on everything, include collections and all that stuff. And worked with 45 libraries that were also in Allegheny County. That's a there's a lot of libraries around Pittsburgh, which, you know, it's kind of the mothership of the Carnegie thing. Um, but the difference being in being in public service at a, a single library and having that identity and sort of inhabiting that identity of I understand what this library is and who it serves in the community that is its designated service area. That's always been my thing is to kind of like focus on the community, really understand it, live in that community and make sure that you're opening all channels to, to the feedback loop that helps you prioritize what you're doing, especially with organizations that have a lot of resources, which I've been lucky enough to work at for the last three public libraries that I've worked at were very well-funded. But I've also worked for tiny libraries with not great funding, although I did start in Ohio, which kind of gives you a little bit of a boost. 
But nonetheless, it, you know, as you're trying to kind of like connect resources with needs, kind of our job and trying to do that on a, st- on a statewide level is so challenging. And the biggest difference is the scale at which that work has to be done. And the, the sort of mental, the mind map that you have to build and maintain that helps you see the variations in needs, the variations in responses from the statewide level and together across the state among the libraries. So Pennsylvania is notorious. And they told me this when I first moved to Pennsylvania to work in Pittsburgh. They were like, Pennsylvania is completely messed up and don't even try to understand it because you'll never get it. Well, now I have to because that's my job. So I have come to understand that the administrative structure of libraries, especially from a state funding point of view, is extremely complicated, way more complicated than it was in Ohio, where we also had great state funding, but it was very simple. So the the relationship of libraries to each other, to the state, and to their communities is a total grab bag. Everybody has... Everybody's very proud of being completely unlike everybody else, which is a total challenge for trying to coordinate statewide service when everyone has their own little very special snowflakey, and I love them. I love them all in their uniqueness. But what I'm really starting to understand is that, as we all know, it's not really that different. So trying to find the similarities so that you can like address those needs in where they show up, and is it geographic, is it socioeconomic, is it size of organization? There's all of those things are always kind of in the mix when you're working at a statewide level. It really does sound like it's a, it's a huge challenge because you have to address the needs of the little libraries, the urban libraries, just every type of library that, that you're going to serve and not exactly. being on the ground in each building and not understanding maybe – not that you don't understand the communities, but it's it's hard to understand the idiosyncrasies of every library district or system or county, and that ha- really has to be a challenge to try to be as much of a listener as possible, as more than just being somebody who's who's you know handing out the cash or or or, right. or trying to figure out an equitable way to distribute resources. Equity, equity is by far one of our biggest challenges and one of our biggest focuses. Because you have to understand, just like in a library, no matter what size your library is, you need to see things through your user's eyes. You've got to see things through the eyes of your community and the eyes of your patron and your prospective users. If you're really going to be successful and be prepared for the future. And the same thing goes for serving libraries statewide. You need to be able to see through the eyes of the tiny libraries with like two staff members and a part-time director and all of the things that that keep them from um, growing or um, feeling safe or, you know, being good at serving their communities because there are libraries, those same sizes with the same kind of restrictions that are good at serving their community. So understanding like, how those things all play out and being able to put myself in the shoes of the folks that I'm working with and not be a state employee. Not I am a state employee. And by the way, everything I say, not the opinion of the Office of <laughs> Libraries or the state of Pennsylvania, Commonwealth, but being able to really identify and with everybody's individual situation and sort of match the response from the state to the degree and the extent of their needs is really kind of the secret to doing it right, in my estimation. So we have a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to be chatting with Susan about all the ways libraries and the profession are adapting and the challenges of the small rural library versus the suburban and urban library, which we just talked about before, but we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail. So we'll be back in just a moment. (music) 
Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. And we're back with Susan Banks, the Director of the Bureau of Library Development for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in Harrisburg. Susan, did I get that right? You sure did. Okay, perfect. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. So it's rare that we talk to someone who is in a position of being a quote-unquote state official who oversees not just a library or a district or city library, but really the entire state. So it, with the unique set of circumstances that we're in with regard to the pandemic, you know, library service has changed, and many pundits and experts have said things like, this has brought the libraries five years into the future. Why five years, you know, is the number that, that everybody's picking? It doesn't make much sense, but, you know, hey, if they want to pick a number. So what the crisis has done really has changed the library model, and I think it's, they've changed the library model moving forward until we have, unfortunately, another thing that changes what we do. So can you explain what a quote-unquote service core is and how libraries have been forced to shift this core? And I th that's my term that I used when I wrote it, when I, when uh -huh. I spent some money. But I love it. It makes total sense. Right. Uh, and it's like core services. So mm -hmm. core library services, which in some cases, everyone feels like they have their own definition of it. But just like everything else, there are some things, which is kind of what they teach us in library school, are sometimes are the things that libraries are there to do. Libraries serve their communities. They share resources, they respond to needs, and they use librarians and library staff to do all of that work in concert with the principles that we operate under within li in library land. So that's kind of my idea of core services, the service core. So what is it? It's information services. Sometimes, you know, we used to call it reference service or whatever. Uh, but really, it's, you know, answering questions, getting people the information they need, and connecting them with the resources they require. And really, for me, that's always been um, the, the essence of that is the connection during the reference interview. It's the ability that we learn about, whether we go to library school, where we can actually then theoretically be able to teach people how to do that really unique thing that is helping people explore the true thing they're looking for, their need, which you, it's hard to find that anymore. And I remember being at the reference desk and back in the day when I actually got to work at the reference desk and of really thinking about, wow, this is a, an extremely complex psychological situation that we exist in, that we live in as reference folks, as librarians, there's a lot going on and none of it's really stated. That's the kind of core piece that I think sets libraries apart from everything else. And it's the, it's the role of value that we as librarians, we as libraries perform that then serves as the sort of fulcrum for when circumstances change. So in-person service, virtual service. For me, those two things have never been far apart. Service on the telephone, service in person, service through video or service through email is, no, is not really different when it comes to the reference interview. It's more challenging in some situations, but it's challenging in every situation. So you just need to kind of like adjust uh, on the fly. So those core service principles, which is understand the needs of your users and your community, respond to those needs with professional skills and that 
library specific orientation for no judgment and open mindedness and listening for the subtext that is the the reference interview are the things that I'm talking about when I'm talking about core library services from the inside. When you look at core library services from the outside, what do people use libraries for? They go there to get uh, readers need need libraries. Readers need libraries and readers need books and materials. So, and watchers need videos or podcasts or for listeners. And the library is the clearinghouse for the connection between the user and their needs for that content and the content itself. What, no matter what form that content takes. Performing our core functions as librarians for the people who need core services in whatever form they take. We need to be present in this time. And stop trying to like either get back to in-person service like I'm comfortable with and that's really controllable. Like that's this is when the doors close. This is when we have we get to stop answering questions and turn our computers off. That kind of traditional service, which I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that because there absolutely is, particularly for library facilities, which have, as we all know, have become you know, the third space. They've become the place that people require for internet access and mental health to get away or to get go someplace where they feel safe and comfortable and they have access to stuff that makes them happy and all of that stuff. What a wonderful thing to be able to provide to your community, a space like that. But that space also exists virtually. And that's the place where I think libraries have not, are just beginning to explore our five-year mission to explore a strange new world. <laughs> I think I think the, the depths and the breadth of virtual library interactions has just begun because we have a community of users everywhere that is starting to get used to a virtual interface and operating through Zoom or Skype or whatever, or even communicating more effectively using the telephone or using email, because that's the way we get to do it now. It makes a lot of sense, too, because this is part of learning your community as well. So now we have to learn how to communicate with our community differently, understanding what our community can and can't do. So, like, one thing that we've utilized here at our library is chat service, which we didn't have before. So chat is another function that you can use so long as it's being manned, which is, you know, that's a staffing thing. Another way to get the community engaged with what you're doing remotely. Yes, yes. That's a yes from the, the leader in Pennsylvania. I like that. That's right. That's I not do. bad. No, that, that's, that's definitely affirmation, right? That's pretty good. <laughs> that's a big fat yes. I like that. Oh, a, yeah, that was a nice yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, Chris, when you said that people have said that it's launched libraries five years down the road, I, I figure because it's made us look at what a necessity is and not just what what is needed, not what's nice, right? So we were doing a lot of things, and if some of them caught – uh, caught on, we would we would put more energy behind that. But when we were down, and I mean that for that for those couple of weeks, we had like no communication as everybody was kind of like run and figure out what is Zoom, how do we get it, you know, how do we reach? What birthed from since then is necessity, right? So that really forced us to reevaluate. Whereas people didn't have you know resources to put into virtual learning, uh, they were always giving that to third party services. Now their staff members were tasked to do this and learn this and learn it quickly because starting Monday, we're going to start doing services this way because it's the only way we can do them. And I saw people that I've worked with for six, seven or eight years that I didn't think could ever be a leader in that facet back then because they didn't need quote unquote need to do it. You know, it would have been nice if they did it, but they needed to do this. I saw them just have a new enthusiasm for their job and for the, and for, for reaching people again. And it's amazing how the community responded, you know, in Setauket and, and in and in Sachem, the way the community responded and they were they just they just lapped it up and they came to it and our yeah. programming has never looked better. New users. Yeah. New yeah. users. Come. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. That who are like, oh we had no idea that the library did these things. And you're That's like, right. yeah. hey, welcome. Oh my gosh. And I love that. I loved watching that new skill set emerge from yeah librarians who thought they were traditional librarians 
but in fact have like really caught fire with this and because it removes so many boundaries and barriers to right. both the users and the providers and the practitioners. It's a whole new world. I think it gave an opportunity to really reboot our libraries. You know, if there were things that we didn't think we could do, boy, I'm telling you, we're finding overnight ways to do it and just solving problems right and left. And I think uh, the people of Pennsylvania, my God, are very lucky to have you at the helm because you're saying all the right things. I mean, I keep some notes when we do these podcasts, as Chris knows. I write down like key words that I get so I can reflect on them later when we talk to people. And for you, you might be interested to know, I have the top words as connection, evolve, a patron-first perspective, enthusiasm is circled and starred on my notepad, um, and inflection. I think you've got it all right, Susan. I really do. Because many times we get people on here that are very schooled in what they're doing and very educated, such as yourself, in what they're doing, but they don't have that enthusiasm and they don't have that patron-first perspective. They're looking at the issues from their desk and they're forgetting where they started and they're forgetting where the where the staff meets the patrons and where the community meets the library they're forgetting that vision is what they should darn well have that every day they're 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 clocking in and clocking out because that's what they're being tasked to do and boy you're doing a great job of that in Pennsylvania right. that enthusiasm that fire is the thing that actually generates support for libraries it's the thing that people begin to understand about the value of libraries. It's what generates local support for libraries. And it's absolutely necessary for library staff to be outwardly focused and to be driven by a vision of sharing this skill that we have that calls us to this work. I'm a believer that librarianship is more like a priesthood in some ways. I used to say that to my staff in Kentucky. I would be like, I would when I would encourage them to go to library school, you got to join the priesthood, man. It sounds a little weird, but it's true. And th and that's one of the reasons why you see successful libraries being successful. I always think of not being able to stay inside your building and think of your responsibility as primarily putting things into that building and letting people into that building to get those things, which is kind of what people, users think of libraries that way. Breaking out of that mold is like a, a central piece of turning the library mirrors, which I always feel like librarians love to sort of see themselves as here we are in this building doing this stuff. Oh, we're so good. It's their identity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, turn those mirrors into windows and look out and see what's yeah. actually going on out there and pay attention. And then you wander out the door and get out there and start doing things, which in this time means never leaving your dining room. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty wild. I wrote down another one because I'll tell you, your enthusiasm is infectious. That's the new word. In fact, it really, it, it just seems to yes. spread. And I, I hope your employees and staff members uh, know how lucky they are to have a good leader like you at the helm. So. <laughs> one phrase that I wrote down was third space. I love yeah. that term because the virtual space is your third space. And it doesn't even matter if you have a robust virtual collection or whether you're just starting right. out. One thing that we've learned in doing this podcast over the past four years and, and just from being in the profession and speaking to people at conferences and, you know, anywhere you're, you know, meeting up with folks is that everybody does it different, but we all do the same thing. There may be a different track to get to that result, but there's the uniqueness of what you do really comes through in, in your approach. So as we evolve from being a primarily in-person service point, we kind of talked about this, to a virtual service point, and then to a quasi-virtual and in-person mm -hmm. service point, what do you foresee past, I guess, the horizon for services in the library moving forward? Oh, that's a good question. Really, I, for me, I think the key is to put effort into erasing the seams between virtual and in-person and every other way that we think of things and think of it more as a multifaceted and but contiguous service climate that we create that is accessible to everyone and equitable in its accessibility, but also its content and it's the way that it connects in out into the in, into the users into the community for specific purposes at, as needed. The argument that, you know, libraries better focus because they're trying to be everything to all people and provide social services when they aren't trained in social services is all true. 
But that's looking at librarianship from the outside and saying librarianship isn't that. But how about if we focus instead on what librarianship is and erasing the scene around library practice of the people who do it for a living and expand that into fully inhabiting, becoming the full, the whole librarians that we are called to be with technical skills and people skills and promotional skills and knowledge that we build every day in facility management and technology management and collection development and programming and services and service design and psychology and all of those things. And if you're a manager and better yet, supervising and building strong library staff and building strong library teams that work together to create that kind of climate, that atmosphere. Just in terms of the totality of what you do, you know, yes, we've been tethered to a building, you know, as part of our service model. But it, it like you said, it's totality of all the things that we do. And that, you know, that even includes going outside the building in outreach. It's one thing to be in the building and, and serve the people that come in. It's another to serve everybody virtually, digitally, and in person outside the building. I mean, it's just, it's part of that new service model. There's always going to be the stereotype that it's a female. She has a bun in her hair. She's wearing pearl earrings and glasses on chain. And she says no all the time. When in fact, yeah. librarians could not be further from that today. So I'm waiting for the day when that stereotype stops being perpetuated. So we can actually move on. So the kids that are born starting today... When they become 15 and 16, or even when they're four or five and they come to the library, they're no. not going to have that perception of what a library is. And libraries really have become community centers, both in person and virtually. So I'm wondering when that stereotype finally does break off. And even people now who are, who are teenagers themselves, they may not come to, yes, they know that the library has books, but they don't see it as the center service point anymore. They see it as when they were little, they came for story time and they got to play in a garden or got to play in a play area. And then when they transitioned to the teens, they were doing things in teens like playing video games and learning about coding and, and doing all the things that teens like to do. And then when they transitioned to adults, which is the biggest trick is trying to keep them in the building once they hit tw 18 and 21, uh, now makerspaces have now come into the forefront, which are retaining the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings in the building. So... I'm wondering when there's a day when the library doesn't have to live with the specter and shadow of, you know, that stereotype of what everybody seems to think a library is, where it's a, you know, a person, and I have to say it too, a white woman behind a desk shushing people. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where we're breaking the stereotype and we're doing what we're doing every day and changing and evolving. You know, we just still can't seem to shake that stereotype. I think, you know, sometimes we just got to wait for the, the generation to pass because it is sticky. There's no doubt about it. But I also know that it's not permanent. Teen services is a really good example. The evolution that I've seen as a library manager in public service of kids who have been who have actually been exposed to modern library services since they were little. So they went through real live, you know, top of the line story time service. And then they got into the sort of cutting edge teen stuff that was that's much more about growing as a human than it is about consuming library content or library materials. The folks who have the professionals in teen services, just like the evolution of children's services from the 60s on has really created a generation of teens who don't have that in their head. They don't have the shushy thing, other than what's kind of still sort of hanging around out in the zeitgeist of memes and <laughs> cartoons and things like that. Sure. But being exposed to non-traditional librarians, non-traditional library services, and in non-traditional library spaces has, I think, really changed the way young people see and use and understand libraries. We'll see if that results in a change in library support long term. But, you know, library support, particularly like funding for libraries, is a complicated thing, super complicated. And I really understand it as even more complicated than I ever 
thought it was now. But that the impact of that evolution of the users moving through modern libraries and being exposed to, it's interesting, talking about uh, traditional and historic library buildings and what those are like for users and then modern library buildings and I've and I've run them all I've run you know those big the historic buildings that are just intense but awe-inspiring just awe-inspiring which that's a library experience I know I never want to see anyone give up is that sense of walking into a building and being like oh Oh, I want everyone to be able to experience that for time immemorial, but to also be able to go into a building that's like, this place is so comfortable and there's space to do what you want to do in it. There's an area to go where you can be noisy and you're not going to get shushed or annoy people. All of those things are actually part of young people's experience now. And I think it's going to pay off because it certainly has paid off in the way they behaved in the libraries. They feel a sense of ownership of their libraries that I don't think certainly people my age and probably folks of your age and a little bit younger, we felt like we were on, you know, kind of hallowed ground and we had to get the permission of the folks. They feel a lot, a lot of ownership, sometimes to an extent that's a little uncomfortable to manage. But uh, I think that will be, that will change things in the future. I believe that. Well, that's actually a good transition to our next question, too, because, you know, as we keep using this word evolution in libraries, we have to think not just about services, but also about workflow, succession planning, and even library skills and set shifts. So how do you think the current library professionals and library schools are going to adapt to this rapidly changing world? Because we all know how much library land loves change. And I, I don't know what we can actually expect from library schools. I haven't. I have not had this conversation with anyone, to be perfectly honest with you. But I have <laughs> ideas. Honestly, academia it has its own restrictions. It's like state government. No matter how visionary you are when you enter into the realm of academia and I would say state government, there are limits to what you can do and how fast things move and who has the say so who is allowed to make decisions particularly about curriculum and when i went to library school i was like y'all i recognize this as at least five years behind the time all of you i remember having a class at oclc because i was in columbus we were at oclc and we were learning to do boolean searches in oh what was the name of that service gopher right no i'm, I'm not old i remember gopher <laughs> um, but this was the the pay the pay service of like uh, it was a you know a reference database kind of thing. So you had to like do your search ahead of time on paper, get on, log in, do your search real quick, get the results, and then get off again so that you weren't paying per minute for access to this information. Can you imagine what that was like? And the teacher actually asked the class, who thinks that this is useless, what we're learning with Boolean searches for this service? And I was like, me? <laughs> <laughs> I was the only one in the class who said that it's not because they wanted to make her happy. And I get it. She was a nice person. But the, it, it, we were already moving to natural language searches on, and Google had arrived. So I was like, this does not make any sense. It's, this is not the direction things are going. It's not any more than people think that, you know, doing something on your phone is weird. It's not weird. And it's not weird to be a kind of person who uses their phone and their iPad and their Mac or their PC and doesn't even know what it is exactly that they're using because they're, they're there to do something not to use a piece of technology. That's the direction the world is going. And library training in every way needs to be going in that direction, a holistic approach to what it is that we're actually after, which is, you know, information services. It's connecting people with the things they need. As you're saying this, I'm thinking in terms of, it's almost scary to think about when academia does standardize it to a class and it becomes quasi what you do and not actually what you do because it has to become an academic, right? It has to become an academic <laughs> endeavor. 
So instead of teaching people how to do a particular feature in with with a Mac versus a PC, you'll and I'm making broad generalizations. So I apologize to academia. I'm just trying to draw a distinction. You know, you'll get a professor that says, "Well, I don't use a Mac, so I'm not going to show you how to do that." If you have a Mac, that's your own problem, right? So again, these are these are more of the issues of academia than it is the actual instruction. And you need somebody that's brave enough to actually come up with a curriculum for makerspaces, for tech help, for right. figuring out things and doing things in a way like, you know, database searching or database creation or metadata gathering. That you need somebody to, to take that bold step and actually teach that class or say as a dean of a library school, we need to teach these classes. Let's go find instructors. Right. We've seen so many programs, and the two of the three that are here in Pennsylvania, they've really merged with the informatics kind of thing and the computer language stuff. And you can still get a master's in library science, but it really is more about the manipulation of information, which is honestly kind of drifting further and further away from public library service. So we could talk about the necessity of the Masters of Library Science in public library practice, but it is something that I think is harder to find as you're looking at programs. As you're, t- as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about an interview we just did with two colleagues in Norway. The, the first colleague, uh, he was the front end where he was pressing the flesh and doing the outreach and doing STEM and STEAM and all this other stuff. And then the other librarian was they affectionately called themselves the front end and the back end, where she was in the back doing metadata and trying to corral machine learning and different types of you know artificial intelligence and gather metadata and find out what that metadata means. And that has become such a big thing in libraries now that it necessitates at least the exposure to that information the same way somebody who's not going to be a scientist still has to take biology and chemistry in, in high school. Right. There should be an introduction or a unit within a, let's say, an adult reference class or a cataloging class or, you know, there has to be some introduction into that of the metadata and some of that information gathering that isn't there for the most part. And again, I'm speaking in broad terms. I'm not singling out any library science program or anything like that. What I'm trying to get at is what I do now managing a makerspace and helping people with their technology and doing all that stuff required no formal training from my master's degree, and it's all learned information. Right. You know, I didn't go to school to learn how to use a 3D printer or a laser engraver or right now podcasting or any of that stuff. This is all learn as you go. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say 90 to 95% of this profession learns this way because we are also educators. Right. And we educate ourselves as much as we educate the public. Or if the public comes in with a question – that may spur on the desire that most librarians have to learn something new and to take exactly. that to the next level. So I think library schools, I think, need to, again, in general, that you know we need to embrace those things because those things are talked about in conferences constantly, talking about metadata, talking mm-hmm. about UX, user experience, mm-hmm. talking about all these other things in marketing and you know being able to know what your patrons are looking for and trying to anticipate the next big thing. And library schools need to embrace that and not just say, here's my doctoral dissertation. I need you to index it. Right. Yes. Yes. Once again, yes. Yes. The essence of the the curiosity of librarians, which is, you know, part of that core, that thing that makes a good uh, reference interview is the curiosity. All of that is the the nuclear fuel that keeps this profession moving into the future. You know, buffing out the seams, as my friend Toby Greenwald in Pittsburgh uses as a as a metaphor, buffing out the seams between how to assess the user experience is the same as being turned outward and community focused and user focused in the development of library services in general. Technology is not a separate thing. It is a means by which we do things in the same way that we do them in person. You know, you have to be able to, again, another skill that, you know, you develop over time. It's, I don't even know if it's something uh, you can learn in school is being able to have that interaction with the patron, too. Right. Exactly. And being good with people. There is, especially for public libraries. Absolutely. Yeah. So during a normal time, uh, working with libraries in such a diverse state as Pennsylvania, there are challenges, of course, 
uh, working with large urban library systems, suburban libraries of varying sizes, and small rural libraries. Uh, one of the biggest concern uh, there is the digital divide. So how is Pennsylvania dealing with this divide in both the big urban settings, suburban and rural communities? Oh, boy. That <laughs> That's is a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. And it's really something that we've been focusing on really uh, a lot this week. So I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. Oh, but, no, they asked the question. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's good. But we've been trying to figure out how to put some of the federal funding that's coming down that's specifically for broadband access. How do we do that? How do we use that in libraries? Because we kind of made a pitch for getting some of it in for libraries so that we focus on the libraries as the point and the coordinating force of expanding broadband access in every geographic area of the state, starting with the ones that are least connected. And Pennsylvania has some of the most, what's the word I want? One end or the other. We have extremely densely accessible areas and giant swaths of the forested part of the state, which is like right to the southern tier of New York. It's all along there. It's all just mostly animals and trees (laughs) and not much internet connections, which for the libraries up there are exceedingly difficult. And when we talk about supporting the continuity of education, that's where everything starts to get really ow and break up and the digital divide really begins to show itself without actually having the infrastructure that you can you can point hotspots at or that you have cells coverage that you can use lendable hotspots you can't get internet access so what what happens when our entire educational system hinges on the internet and people don't have it and can't get it what do you do and i don't know what the answer to that question is but you you can help with access in the ways that you can It's not just infrastructure, it's also affordability. So in the urban areas, you have the accessibility, it's accessible to get internet access and you have coverage, but you cannot afford it. You know, there are a lot of programs, particularly in education, they're doing their absolute best to make sure that everybody, all the kids, all the students have or can get access and some kind of technology. But once you're out of the protective skin of K-12 education, and sometimes arguably post-secondary education, then it's like you are flipping on your own people. And if, if you can't get internet access for whatever reason, you are held back in every single way. And just the way that we're here talking this afternoon, we don't even think about all of the things that have to be in place our personal technology, our internet connections, the internet connections that connect to each other, and the stability of those connections to be able to do all of this stuff. It's the accessibility of those things. It's the affordability of those things. And it's the, there's also a lot, as we know. And that's another thing that I've really seen in my time in libraries. I started in libraries, as I said, in 1997, when I was in Ohio, and the Ohio Public Library Information Network was established in 1997. And that's connected all of the public libraries in the state of Ohio, all 250 libraries. And then it began to, you know, grow out from there with electronic resources and all that stuff. You're speaking a lot of truth today. Yay! That's my goal. (laughs) the truth. Talking about, you know, people, well, rural libraries don't have high-speed internet, but it's the urban libraries that are as much an issue as the rurals. It's a socioeconomic thing as much as it's anything else. Some of it is access. Like I always use the example of the Adirondacks who just recently in the past year and a half got high-speed internet service that people could purchase. For that, it was dial-up or satellite, which you were paying by megabyte. Not by gigabyte, but by megabyte. Yep. And even so... Still true of the rural areas in northern Pennsylvania. Sure, I'm sure. And, And just because they run the lines doesn't mean that people can afford the service either. So, I mean, it's really interesting that libraries can step in and have stepped in with hotspots and things like that, where there there is coverage for, you know, LTE coverage, where then people who are who can't afford the service can, can actually get access to the internet. And talking in terms of kids with remote learning, you know, if they're getting a Chromebook from their school, now they can connect to the internet, because we all know that Chromebook really is quite useless without an internet connection. Yeah. And I wonder at some point, do schools, you know, public schools even start to embrace the idea of giving a hotspot along with a Chromebook 
so then they can actually connect. And, and not that there's enough, I don't know if there's enough bandwidth in the world to handle every student in the country doing virtual learning with, you know, streaming classes and things. But, you know, now it even the, the question is whether or not Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint, you know, whether or not all of these companies can actually amp it up. Yeah, faster is great. How about the depth and breadth to handle the load versus just the speed? Right. So it, it, it begs the question that whether or not those service providers can provide that service as well. I'm learning a lot about what, because we're inside the Department of Education, we're at the table now trying to figure out the answers to all of these continuity of education questions. Uh, and what what everybody's run into now is the lack of actual of hardware. There's no hotspots available. There's no Chromebooks available. There, the supply chains are just busted up. You know, there's something we can't do anything about, really. But in libraries in particular, too, especially when you talk about urban and rural libraries, if you talk about urban libraries and you talk about large urban libraries, you're talking about libraries that have historic buildings or even if they're suburban libraries, but older like Carnegie libraries are notorious for being expensive to keep up with the technological infrastructure necessary. Plus, you got giant, thick walls that you can't shoot a Wi-Fi signal through. And it becomes a, a financial burden to continue to expand that to meet the needs of the folks who walk in with their own portable technology to use even the Wi-Fi signal inside. Shooting it out from the library, which is what most of our, a lot of our public libraries in Pennsylvania focused on during the closure. We closed down on, we closed all the libraries on like March 17th and they began to reopen about halfway or three quarters of the way through June. And during that time, they were really working on trying to get their external Wi-Fi signals pushed out a little bit. And we've been working around the state with the ITDRC. Have you guys heard about ITDRC? It's the Internet Technology Disaster Recovery, something that starts with a C. But they're amazing. And they go right now, they're like in California working around the wildfires and down in Texas working around the hurricanes uh, or the aftermath from all of those things to reestablish Internet infrastructure. So that's what we, our libraries were working and will continue to work with them to establish extended internet infrastructure, which is great. So there are like these solutions, but the complexity of the technological web that has to be in place for good access is overwhelming sometimes and expensive. When you're talking about library funding being the way it is just about everywhere, which is kind of maybe okay but mostly iffy, becomes another factor and another piece of the equation. We have covered the gamut in this podcast today. We haven't solved the world's problems, but at least we proposed a whole bunch of different things. It, it really is interesting when you talk to somebody who's in the position that you're in. Did, did that answer your question? <laughs> but the bigger question is, yeah, is there an answer to the question? This is a great discussion. Um, to talk about the, all of these issues that, that we're dealing with now in the time of COVID, even though these issues existed before, it's just amplified now by the, the times that we're living in. So we want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. Having some of this insight into what the view looks like from a state management perspective helps all of us that are down here in the trenches. It helps us understand the varying issues that need to be addressed and what the view looks like from your end because it's very rare that you get to hear from somebody who works at your level what you see, what you understand, and what you see are, are important issues. So it's really nice to have that perspective. So when we come back, we're going to be asking Susan our top 10 library questions, or the, what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always give credit and thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for naming the list of questions. So we will be back in just a moment. So we are back with Susan Banks, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. Questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. 
They do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you so much, Literary Hub. Okay, you ready? What did you want to be when you were a child? I really, uh, the boss. That's what I wanted to be, if you ask anybody I grew up with. <laughs> Especially my nine siblings, they tell you that I wanted to be the boss. Really. And now you're the boss. <laughs> and now I'm the boss. That's great. <laughs> so what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? <sighs> That's a good one. Uh, as I said, I grew up on a farm in Kentucky, so I didn't really, we didn't go to the library because uh, we, we, we never left the farm much. <laughs> but when I grew up in, between the ages of seven and 12, I was in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia, and they have an amazing library system up there. And my mom and dad took me to the library very quickly when we moved there, and I totally fell in love. So when did you decide to work in a library? And if it wasn't your first career choice, what was your first career choice? Because librarianship usually is a second career for people. Second or third. My first career choice and my bachelor's degree is in theater. So I first did theater and I did it professionally for about 17 years. Uh, I was, I kind of wanted a more settled life. So I got into the community arts and I became a statewide association director for arts councils in Ohio, which was an amazing job. I loved it. And I learned a lot about grant writing and my salary was paid for by the National Endowment for the Arts. And I really realized at that point that the arts is a difficult place to earn a living. I worked as a consultant for like to helping arts organizations write strategic plans and stuff like that for about six months. And I spent a lot of time in my community library in, in my little town in Ohio. And the person who I found out was the director one time asked me at the CERC desk, she's like, because I used to get there, go there like three times a week. And she'd be like, are you looking for a job by any chance? And I was like, maybe. Now and I am. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she handed, I said, she handed me two job descriptions community relations for 15 hours a week and adult services for 15 hours a week. And I came back the next day with my resume and I handed them over to her and I said, I can do both of those jobs. And I did. I started there at, for $7 an hour, uh, 30 hours a week. And within about three months, I realized this is exactly where I belong. I applied to library school at Kent State, got right in, got right um, cracking. And before I finished my library degree, I had moved through two more amazing libraries and had my first directorship. So who was your favorite fictional librarian? <gasps> oh, darn it. Her, Bunny in Desk Set. I can't remember what her last name was. Catherine Hepburn's character in Desk Set. Oh, we haven't had that. That's have a new that? one. That's a new that one. So what would you be doing if you were not working in the library profession? You may have answered this <gasps> in your previous question, previous, previous answer, as it were. Yeah. The whole theater thing. Yeah, I've done that, though, really. And uh, it was nice. I, I got to be on a theater board when I was in Pittsburgh. That was really fun uh, to be on, to kind of make that change. I think I'd, I'd probably, like if I wasn't working in libraries right now, I'd probably be writing. I would think I would like to write. What is your favorite section of the library? Wow. And it can mean, That's it doesn't hard. necessarily mean fiction, nonfiction, or history, or biographies. Right. It could be, yeah, it really be the maker space. It could be the cafe. It could be the quiet study room. Right. That's actually, I was like, what part of, and I and I immediately got a picture of my library in Kentucky, the Erlanger branch of the Kenton County Public Library. And I thought, oh, what fun. There's, It's hard for me to pick. I love libraries. And I, if I'm, look, I'm kind of thinking about all the libraries that I worked in, and how much I, and really, weirdly, what I enjoyed was walking around, like making a circuit of the entire library and seeing how people were using it. That's such a geeky thing to say, but, and, and such an, in, you know, like an inside baseball kind of thing. I like to watch how users use the library. How fun. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the libraries in Pennsylvania or just your library in general? I think I would add, uh, oh, you know what I would add if I had infinite space and money is <laughs> to a specific library, I would add the Museum of Carnegie Libraries 
to the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. It's it's in a, an inst, it's in a, a giant facility with the Carnegie Museum of Art and the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And it was built by Mr. Carnegie as the institute. And uh, the museum pulled away from, or the, the library pulled away from the museums about uh, 20, 2007 or so. It had actually just been managed as all one thing. Ooh. But there's some really cool spaces in there that are really ad- administrative offices and stuff. And I've, I would walk down the halls and I'd be like, this would be the most awesome library for Carnegie libraries because there are Carnegie libraries all over the world. And everyone thought and still thinks probably that somehow all the Carnegie libraries are connected, which you, we know they are not, but that, and that the one in Pittsburgh is like the mothership of all Carnegie libraries, which is not, but that history of how Carnegie libraries were built and how that whole program worked and all that stuff doesn't really exist in one place. And it was my, and remains my <laughs> vision to have that exist in Pittsburgh, because that's where it started. So what do you actually absolutely love about libraries? I love how they're available to everybody. You can never go wrong with leaning on a library. And as a librarian, I like to think that no one can go wrong leaning on me for that kind of response and service. Okay, so what is the weirdest thing that's happened in your library career? Not necessarily the worst thing, but the weirdest thing. Well, (laughs) I've been in a lot of libraries, and a lot of weird things happen in libraries. You know that. But this is the thing. My very first library, my office was in the computer lab, which use that term loosely, but there were like six computers, and I was the person who sat at the desk, and that was my desk, and helped people and everything in the computer lab. And one afternoon, it was really quiet. It was before the school, before school let out. So before everything kind of went crazy. And I thought a bomb went off and it really scared me. And I, it, something had hit the building right outside my office. But there were windows to the parking lot. And I looked over and there was like plaster filtering down from the wall and the ceiling. And I was like, oh, my God, what happened? And we all kind of, there were like probably three of us in the library at the time and staff members, some customers, some patrons, but the staff members, we all ran out and there was a lady, an older lady who had something, I don't know what happened to her exactly, but instead of pressing on the, or she pressed on the gas and thought she was in reverse, but she was actually in drive and her car just jammed into the building right between the two windows in the computer center and it busted the whole exterior of of the library caused this huge crack that was you know like a really serious um problem and we ended up having to close the library down for like a month while they fixed the structural damage done by that accident and she was okay Uh, she was busted up pretty good she hit her head on the her face on the steering wheel so that was kind of awful but that was definitely weird so beyond that lady did you have a favorite regular patron oh (laughs) there's always there's always favorite regular patrons any regular patron is my favorite really but there was one there was a guy who came to our library uh the erlanger branch of the kenton county public library in erlanger kentucky the busiest library location in the state of Kentucky, by the way. But he was a professor at one at the college that I went to, which was not far away from my branch, uh, Thomas More College. He was a retired professor, and he, every day, walked probably about four or five miles one way from his apartment to the library down a major thoroughfare, like a, like, um, a state route. So it was like four lanes of traffic and he walked every day and read while he walked. And he was, you'll, you can even find a Facebook group of pictures of him uh, that people would spot him in his journeys, but he would come in almost every day and get more books. And he walked and read the man who walks and reads. Okay. So final question, what are people without library cards missing out on? Oh, well, 
certainly electronic resources, uh, as most of our electronic resources are linked to uh, the need for a library card. Uh, the good news is library cards are available more now than they ever have been and more easily now than they ever have been. And it is, it's fun to just sort of randomly post on Facebook and let people know, here's what you can do with your library card, which my, actually my husband and I do that for our library here in Harrisburg, the Dauphin County Library System. They're like, my husband posted on Facebook the other day, did you know that you can use newspapers.com with your DCLS library card? And like four people immediately posted, wow, I didn't know that. How do I get a library card? So it is such a key, and it takes so little to turn it into whatever you want it to be. So if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Probably by email. But you can absolutely, my easiest email address is my work email address, which is S-U-S-B-A-N-K-S, SuzBanks, at PA.gov. SuzBanks at pa.gov. Well, that's really simple. That's not bad at all. Do you have anything else you want to share with us, like some plugs or something? Um, no, nothing that I can really talk can really talk about right now. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, and I'll keep you posted on some of the projects that are emerging in Pennsylvania. But uh, I just really thank so much for inviting me to come on, and thanks for letting me just spout off. No, it's not a problem at all. It's, it's a wealth of Great information. Yeah, we're really happy that you came on today. So thanks for coming in. Thanks. It's awesome. Thanks, y'all. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>